Amen. Revelation 22, and um, just going to deal with the first two verses, although in reality I'm only going to deal with the first part of the first verse. So, Pastor Ken, you can appreciate that, right? <laughs> Here we go. We'll make some real progress today. We'll do half a verse. How about that? So, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But um, it's the water of life in eternity. That's what it is. Um, let me just read that to you, and then I want to take a, a little excursion back. That's one of the reasons it's going to take a while, because I want to spend some time on the whole idea of no temple being there, too. And that's found in the previous chapter. There were some things I've come across and thought about that I didn't say that I want to add in. But uh, the first two verses of Revelation chapter 22 uh, the scene has switched, and uh, now we are seeing um, actually a different view of the eternal kingdom. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, we've heard that one before, right? We'll be seeing that again in a few weeks here with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And uh, that part, well actually, so much of this comes from Ezekiel chapter 47, which we won't have time to deal with tonight, Lord willing, we'll get up to Ezekiel 47 and then we'll pick up from there next time. Now, just to recap about the fact that there was no temple in the New Jerusalem, no temple in the heavenly city. Um, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, spent the bulk of his ministry exhorting the people of Jerusalem not to fight against Babylon. We've mentioned that before. Instead, submit to their captivity and things will go well for them. In fact, Jeremiah went so far as to tell the people that uh, they would be in captivity for 70 years. Uh, Daniel figured that out by, by reading uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah. However, the people refused. The false prophets kept saying the city would not be overthrown. And they said that they had reason to say that God would fight for them. And here, here was their reasoning. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. You can mark that down if you want to. Uh, turn there if you wish to. But I'll just read it to you. This is what the false prophets were saying in Jeremiah 7, 3 and 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. So that's a great promise. That, that's not the false prophets. That's a great promise from God. Amend your ways, and I'll let you stay in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. So here's the words of the false prophets. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, why would they say that? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They, they say it three times. And, um, you know, this is basically what they were saying. God says, amend your ways. And the people say, kind of. We don't have to amend our ways because we have the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is here. God's with us, you know. So, um, even though it was very, very true that uh, they were adulterers, they were Baal worshipers, there was murder in the streets, 
All kinds of wickedness was going on. The wickedness that Jeremiah was warning them of, they said, it's not going to happen to us. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is here. In other words, God's with us. It doesn't matter what we do. Well, there was a point of no return. And this we find in the book of Ezekiel. Of course, we see it in Jeremiah too. But it's vividly given to us in Ezekiel chapter 10. Again, you can turn there if you wish, but I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you basically what it says. Ezekiel 10, uh, the book of Ezekiel is um, a difficult book in, in many, many ways, but it's also a companion book to the book of Revelation in many ways too. And um, I'll just tell you what Ezekiel 10 says, and you can read it on your own later. Uh, in a vision, Ezekiel's taken to Jerusalem. Not the new Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that existed. Ezekiel had been taken to Babylon in the second wave of captivity. He was one of the young men taken, and uh, an important figure. They were taking important figures, basically, until they finally came the third time and, and decimated the city. Ezekiel was taken out of his homeland into Babylon. And in a vision, and it's important to note that it is a vision in Ezekiel chapter 10, he isn't really taken to Jerusalem. He's taken to Jerusalem in a vision to see what was happening and to see the evil that's taking place. And he does see what's happening. He does see the evil. He does see the way the people are acting. And God shows him the wickedness and hypocrisy behind their so-called trust in God and the temple. And in chapter 10, in dramatic fashion, Ezekiel sees those famous wheels within a wheel. I think um, it was, oh, when I was a teenager, uh, a famous book, a real popular book came out uh, called The Chariots of the Gods. And uh, so Ezekiel chapter 1 uh, talks about the wheels within a wheel and the way the wheels move. And I, I can't even picture it. I can't, I've, I've tried to picture what in the world is being said and the four living beasts that are with it. And they had four, four faces on either side. It was just really a very confusing thing, and the cherubim. To me, it's confusing. And I think it probably was confusing to Ezekiel, too, as he tries to explain it, what he sees. Well, anyway, uh, he sees the same vision with a wheel within a wheel and uh, eyes all around and uh, the four living beasts. There they are again, okay, uh, here in Ezekiel chapter 10. But he then sees something very, very different as he sees that vision. He sees a vision of the temple area of Jerusalem. And there in the temple area of Jerusalem, he looks, and there coming from the most holy place is the Shekinah glory of God. But it's not coming down onto the temple. It's leaving the temple. It's leaving, and it comes up, comes out, goes through the gate, goes through the east gate, and it's gone. What is, what's being said? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. But the glory of the Lord had already departed. That's what it was all about. And so God had figuratively left his temple. And the interesting thing is they went to the east, they went to Babylon, where the people of God were, or many of them were, and where many of the people of God that were obedient would be that refused to fight 
refused to do whatever, and they would surrender to the king of Babylon as God had ordained that would happen. Disaster was sure to come, and it did, even to the point of Ezekiel foretelling exactly how that disaster would come in chapter 12. In chapter 12, uh, Ezekiel foretells what would happen to King Zedekiah. And just listen to these words from, from Ezekiel 12, 13. God says, I will spread my net over him, talking about King Zedekiah, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I'll bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, and he will die there. Now prophecy is often given in terms that are hard to understand, but it's always easy to understand them once they've been fulfilled. And this one's very easy to understand once it's been fulfilled. I'll bring him to Babylon, exactly what happened to Zedekiah, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And in a remarkable way, this prophecy came true. Zedekiah would not listen to Jeremiah. He'd even call for him. He'd ask for advice from time to time. And even though he believed that, Zedekiah, or that Jeremiah was speaking from the Lord, Zedekiah refused to obey. The Babylonians did besiege Jerusalem. At night, Zedekiah, with some of his key men, tried to escape the city. And Zedekiah was captured. And in an account that reads almost word for word in three different places in the Bible for an entire chapter, 2 Kings chapter 2, or sorry, 2 Kings, it's in 2 Kings, it's in 2 Chronicles, and it's in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, three times you can just read this account the same way. Uh, he was captured, his sons were killed before his eyes, and his eyes were put out. And he he was then taken to Babylon, where he died. It's exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. And it's exactly what did happen. Right down to the smaller details. The anger of the Lord, the anger, well it was the anger of the Lord, but it was the anger of the Babylonians that he used that ran wild. Jerusalem was left in ruins, the temple was destroyed. But God had already left the temple. It was now just a shell of a building. God's presence was no longer there. And uh, there was no temple in Jerusalem. You know, the tabernacle was the place of worship under Moses. And it remained that way uh, for many years. Then Solomon built the temple. And it stood for 476 years before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, uh, of course, now it was gone. But then it would be rebuilt by Ezra. But uh, that's how important the tabernacle and temple had been. In the new heaven and the new earth, there is no temple, no need for a literal temple. The new heaven and the new earth become the eternal dwelling place of God and his people. And in Revelation 21, the focus was on the, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, which is pictured as a massive city, a huge cube, picturing the most holy place behind the veil. We also saw the city itself was the elect people of God from all the ages. Now we come to chapter 22. Chapter 22, and we see a different aspect of the eternal state. The new earth is the temple of God, and we'll see that parallels with chapter 21. 
of where God and his people, actually, the, the person of Jesus Christ himself is there in all of his glory. So why would you need a brick and stone temple? The Lord Jesus Christ, you know, the one who said that his body was the temple. Okay, chapter 22. Let's just read the first two verses. We'll only deal with uh, the first part of verse 1. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And that's what we're talking about tonight. The river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. We'll be talking about the tree of life in the weeks to come. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's taken from Ezekiel 47. If you want to read Ezekiel 47 later, you'll get a little bit of a head start. First 12 verses to get a little bit of a head start of exactly where this comes from and the meaning behind it there. Okay, so Adam and Eve were created and lived in the paradise of God, the Garden of Eden, beginning of human history. The garden was beautiful, it was fitted to their needs. It was a place of peace, safety, and satisfaction. It was the first temple, because remember really a, a temple isn't necessarily a building. The temple is the place where the the people meet with God and he dwells in his special presence there and promises to be with the people there. And that's shown up in the Old Testament often as the Shekinah glory, you know. But um, the possibility for corruption did exist in that first garden, as you know. And the temptations of Satan were heeded and paradise was lost. We've been reading and are reading about paradise regained. And uh, that'd make a good title for a book, wouldn't it? Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained. Somebody should have thought of that. Oh, maybe they did a long time ago. Okay. So anyway, Adam sinned against God, and all mankind became defiled, depraved, and doomed to die. Even paradise itself was cursed, corrupted, and mankind was driven out of Eden. Well, chapter 22 is another picture of paradise restored, given to us, as usual, in figurative language, and in language that John compiles and takes from uh, a few places in the Old Testament. And uh, we'll be spending some time going into those symbols as we go here. But uh, tonight we just look at a snapshot of uh, just this first part of the verse, talking about the water of life and uh, the imagery that lays behind it. We won't even finish that tonight uh, in totality. So let's begin there and deal with the river of life that's here. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, and then describes it as bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And then, of course, the scene then changes to the tree of life. This river of life, this water of life, is feeding the tree of life, which is bringing forth fruit, as bringing forth, uh, okay, so we'll get to that as we go and the symbolism behind it. To really understand the river here, we go back to Eden once again. A river flowed from Edom. That's what we're told in Eden, uh, which we were told in Genesis 2.10. In fact, Genesis 2.10 says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden 
and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay, so here's the river flowing from, now, now rivers as we know them today generally uh, start in, well they start from springs sometimes like that. This river seems to flow uh, in Eden out of the garden. Uh, we're not uh, talking about uh, rainfall making it happen and such like that, but it's in a very abundant river so abundant that as it flows out of Eden, it flows to four rivers, which figuratively could be thought of as, as going out to water the entire earth. Okay, so that's the way that you can look at that. Uh, it gives names to them uh, in the book of Genesis. I don't think the names there are really significant, um, although two of them are, are familiar, the Euphrates and the Tigris. But even though it talks about the Euphrates and the Tigris and the other two rivers that um, I can't remember the name of, uh, which don't correspond to any river we know, the Euphrates and the Tigris probably don't correspond to the Euphrates or the Tigris either. Um, that's, you know, it, what we're talking about here is a pre-flood world. And obviously the flood just changed the geography of everything, you know. And where is the Garden of Eden? We have no idea. We can kind of guess an area, but we'd be guessing, you know, really to know where it is. It's been obliterated. It's been gone, you know. And today there are literally thousands of rivers. And, and this is God's good grace to us. Thousands of rivers. These are, these are life-giving streams. In reality, um, talk about the kind of life that we live today. We're dependent upon these streams and these rivers, and there's thousands of them. And the water cycle that we know today, it's marvelous. It's almost uh, incredible that anybody believes in evolution when you think about the way that all of this works together. And it's the handiwork of God. It's his grace. It's his mercy in spite of the sin of mankind, in spite of uh, having to be driven from Eden, driven from the tree of life, there is for us still a river flowing that will abundantly feed us spiritually, a tree of life that'll be there, tremendous blessing. But here on the earth, when you think about it, God in his mercy allows there to be thousands and thousands of streams and rivers and a, a river that, that flows well. I, I remember I was um, actually with the Balkans, Becky and I were, before we had kids, spent a week uh, up in the, the mountains of Montana. And you talk about wilderness, it's the biggest, the, the most wilderness place I've ever been. Uh, there's no electricity within miles and miles and miles of the place. We had a nice, beautiful little cabin and it was right beside a river. And how did we drink our water? He just went out there to the river, which was pristine, was not polluted, probably isn't that way anymore, but it was pristine and not polluted. You just uh, stuck your cup in if you wanted to, or you could put your whole pitcher in there. And you had beautiful, clear, clean water that you could drink, life-giving water. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Now, we happened to be there at the right time of year, I also happen to know that it can be pretty rough out there <laughs> when the snows fall and it falls deep and, and treacherous there at the, uh, what they call them, um, what do they call that where the Continental Divide? 
the Continental Divide. We are right on the Continental Divide. In fact, about um, you get about um, you take the freeway, you take the road. There's the Continental Divide, and then you get off and you just follow a dirt road for about 10 miles, and that's where we were. You know, and at the Continental Divide there was nothing. It was there was nothing there either. Well, anyway, the water was abundant. It was life-giving, and um, you know we need that. We need water to live. This is God's mercy, but it also is God's judgment. And that's what we don't think of as often, except if you watch the news. They'll never tell you it's God's judgment, but what is a hurricane? It's where the storm has gone crazy and just attacks with fury, destroying things in its path. A tornado, um, more compact than a hurricane, but boy, you get hit by a tornado, uh, yeah, you get directly by a tornado, and you're in big-time trouble. And then there are droughts. We have droughts, and the water is scarce, and sometimes it's even dangerous, and there's parts of the land that turn to desert and become totally unprofitable and not able to be used for any kind of crops or anything like that. And if only it would rain with the... Tucson, oh, a couple months ago, and uh, a lot of barren land between here and Tucson, but there'd also been a lot of rain this year. And guess what? Grass, bushes, flowers even, you know? Because that's all it took, was a little bit of life-giving rain. But the judgment of God can be seen in droughts, it can be seen in storms, even the, the wonderful electrical storms that actually help to clear the air and uh, make the air more breathable can also cause massive destruction and wildfires. It's just all part of a sinful world that's been cursed by God because of sin, you know. And the rains come and they're refreshing, but then they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming and it's a flood, right? So this is what we're talking about. Not so in the new heavens and new earth. There's a beautiful river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? From the throne of God in the Lamb. We'll talk about that next time. Okay. The source of this river. Okay. Well, these are all aspects of the fall. But God has made a good earth, but the earth has been cursed. And what was lost in Eden, Eden is restored in the new earth. And the river of God waters the earth again. And there'll be no floods, no droughts, no deserts. These are literal truths. But the most important thing is the spiritual truth. And that's what's important. So turn to Psalm 1. Turn to Psalm 1. And I want to credit my friend Max Donner for the following outline because um, I don't think I would have thought of this, but uh, he sparked my thinking in his book that he wrote. He talks about water as a symbol of blessing, first of all. In the Bible, the water is used as a symbol of blessing. Psalm 1, some of the most familiar words in the scripture. Let me read them to you, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And on his law, he meditates day and night. And aren't that what we're told to do? We, we, that should be filling our thoughts, are the things of God. And we should be thinking of the things of God. And, and um, you could take it somewhat literally. If you take it very literally, you take scriptures and you tie them to your forehead uh, like the Jews often did. But we don't need to do that. We have the written word of God. We can read it. We can meditate upon it. We can take it in. But what is he like, this man? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does shall prosper. So here's a picture, spiritually speaking now, of um, a man, a godly man, planted like a tree. And this tree is not just any tree. Trees will send their roots down deep down until they find water, if they can. Well, in this particular case, this tree is planted by the rivers of water, so the waters are abundant. There's no problem at all to the, the godly man. The life-giving stream nourishes him as God nourishes his soul. And what we see is safety, stability, and uh, fruitfulness in abundance. And this is what God would have for us. And his leaf doesn't wither. You know, he prospers. He prospers spiritually. It's not talking about getting rich or anything like that. He prospers spiritually as he follows the Lord and meditates on his word and does the will of God. So first of all, water is a symbol of blessing. And we see that given to us here. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Second of all, um, Water is a picture of eternal life. Water is a picture of eternal life. Turn with me to John chapter 4. By the way, the Psalm 1, talking about yields its fruit in its season, uh, is found here in Revelation 22, verse 2. But not just here, it's also found in Ezekiel 47. Okay. John chapter 4. Water is a picture of eternal life. The whole chapter practically is devoted to the woman at the well and Christ's meeting with the woman. The book of John is very unique amongst the Gospels as it spends so much time with Christ dealing one-on-one -on -one with certain individuals. Now the truth of the matter is there are literally hundreds and hundreds of individuals that Christ would have dealt with like that, but we're given the snapshot of a few. And the woman at the well is, is one of them. And so in John chapter 4, the woman, the Lord is talking with this woman. The disciples are gone, and Christ begins a dialogue with this Samaritan woman, who actually was a notorious sinner, by the way. A notorious sinner. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. I won't read the whole chapter, just those two verses. Jesus said to her, to the woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Now, you've never had water that satisfied you so well that you never got thirsty again, right? I've had delicious water, that mountain stream I was talking about uh, in Montana, was probably the best water I've ever had in my life. But we'd drink out of it three, four, five times a day, right? Because you're going to be thirsty again, okay? Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Jacob's well was not going to satisfy you forever. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him 
a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, you know what that means, right? You know what that means, obviously. Talking about the satisfaction that comes from knowing the Lord and how the abundant resources, just like we saw in Psalm 1, belong to us that know the Lord. Turn over to John chapter 7. Of course, that, that one goes on, but I just wanted to bring up that idea of the spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ in his public ministry. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then we get the, the inspired commentary on what the words of Jesus mean. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so that's where our prosperity comes from. There's where our soul thirst is satisfied from. It's the work of the Spirit to those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That idea of living water was very important and um, very much something that he thought I was waving at him, but I wasn't. I was just waving my arm. <laughs> okay, you didn't see that, but I did. So there you go. Um, the living water is um, that it, it was a matter of life and death. I mean, have you ever seen a stagnant pool of water? It doesn't have to be very big, even. Just stagnant. And it sits there for a week or a month. Pray hard that your neighbors don't have stagnant pools of water that breed mosquitoes that carry death. You know, I mean, they do. Mosquitoes are some of the most dangerous creatures on the face of the earth. Stagnant pools of water. Now you put your cup down and drink, and the next thing you know, you're sick. Sick as could be, could even die. Okay, living water is what we need. The reason that Montana water was so clear is it was a stream and it flowed over rocks. And I was told, and I guess that it's true, I wouldn't try to test it, they said a deer could fall dead in that stream and a hundred yards downstream you could drink the water because it was purified by the rocks. Now, I wouldn't test that out, by the way, but that's what they said. They said that's how that, that God has made this to work in that particular way. Now you start throwing some of the things into streams of water that we throw into streams of water and it doesn't work that way. That's part of the problem. We've really polluted things pretty badly. And so, um, but God in his mercy and God in his wisdom has just created the earth to work this way, which is a wonderful thing. Well, living water as opposed to stagnant water Moving water is living water, a flowing stream. In fact, it's interesting. It's one of the things that encourages me about being a Baptist is I, I read in the Didache. The Didache is an ancient church manual. It's not inspired. But it does tell us what the first century and the early second century church was, was thinking about and how they were actually wrestling with some problems and trying to deal with them. Sometimes it's almost a little humorous, 
But at other times, it, it's very, very wise. Usually, it, it's more wise than it is humorous. It's just a, a few things. They, they talk about if a prophet comes to you, this is one of the humorous ones, I think. A prophet comes to you and uh, asks to, to spend the night. You let him spend the night. He spends one day, and that's fine. He spends two days, that's fine. But on th day three, if he doesn't work, he's a false prophet, kick him out of the house, basically, is what it says to do, you know? He's just sponging off of you, living off of you, you know? Well, that's part of the practical wisdom of the Didache there. You're gonna stay with you by day three, you now are not a guest, you're a worker, you know? And you're gonna uh, pull your own weight like that. Well, they talk about this idea of baptism. And they say to baptize in a living stream. And I don't think they mean take that baby in a living stream, get a handful of water and dunk it, you know, pour it on the baby. No. Baptize in a living stream. Okay, that's what you're supposed to do. And if you don't have a living stream, make sure that it's cool water. Don't, don't baptize in warm water. Now, we break that rule of the Didache, but our sanitation prop <laughs> processes are a little better than what they're talking about. We have a hot water heater, we fill a pool, uh, we don't uh, let it sit there for, for weeks on end. You know, we fill it, we drain it after the baptism. Okay. So we can have warm water and be just fine. Okay. But there, warm water was dangerous water. Okay. And so you do not baptize in a stagnant pool. Do not baptize in warm water. And then it gives uh, one of its, dedicated being very practical, uh, it gives uh, you one out. You don't have a stream, and you don't have good water that is safe. Then what you can do is you can pour water three times on the head of the individual. Now, I don't believe that's inspired, and I don't think that's what we should be doing. And I believe that uh, we can easily find a way to, to avoid that. But, you know, they're just being practical as best as they possibly could. So they said, okay, pour water three times on their head. Which, again, proves that what they were talking about was immersion, by the way. I think that's one of the great things about that saying. It proves they were immersing people, and as a last resort, there's nothing else you can do than, than pour water on their head three times. Okay. So, anyway. Living water as opposed to stagnant water. Very practical advice. We see this in the book of Revelation. Um, you, if you're still there, turn to Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, and we find this water of life given three times at least in the book here in the last two chapters. 21.6, And he said to me, It is done. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And that should take us to another thought. Without payment. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, Ho, you who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink. Come and buy without money and without price. Without money because you don't need money to come. And without price because it's priceless. You could never afford to pay it. So Christ has taken up that imagery here. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then chapter 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. 
brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, our, our passage for tonight. And then, 22:17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Aren't you glad it says without price? I mean, there are rich people and that'll be in heaven. And I'm glad that there are. That's God's good grace. But you know, the vast majority of the people in heaven were never much on this earth. And they were never all that successful. That's kind of hard for us to imagine because uh, truthfully, we as Americans, almost every one of us live more like kings uh, than uh, the people have ever lived before and before us and in other times. We, we've just been blessed beyond measure. Most of the people have lived in the kind of poverty that we see on television sometimes and the kind of suffering and the kind of pain and, and God's been really good to us and I just think it, it's much, much worse for us the way we treat God, kind of akin to those that lived in Jerusalem before the Babylonians came and said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. And it's like, well, we're Americans. We deserve to live like kings, whether we care about God or not. Yeah, God will not be mocked, my friends. God will not be mocked. Third of all and last of all, I'm going to end here tonight. Just don't have time to go to Ezekiel 47. Didn't think I would. Third of all, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now this comes from John chapter 7 again. John chapter 7, the Lord says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So we see that there, the rivers of water flowing from your heart, or the translation might say from your belly. Really, uh, it's a Hebrewism. The Hebrews talked about the kidneys and talked about the belly and talked about all those things. We always talk about the heart. And so a lot of our modern translations will use heart, even though uh, cardia be it in Greek, is, is um, not there, for instance. So to conclude, uh, you may think of eternal state in this way. Conclusion. It's continually and constantly changing for the better. Now we're going to explore this next time. Not, not next Sunday, because next Sunday is the quarterly gathering. But the next time we meet, we'll go to Ezekiel 47, and we'll see the eternal state is continually and constantly changing, but it's always changing for the better, you know? Um, and how can that be? How can things keep getting better and better and better? That, that's not really possible on this earth. Things can't keep getting better and better. You might have the greatest day ever, and then the next day is horrible, okay? Or you may have the greatest experience ever, but, you know, it doesn't last. In the eternal state, it gets better, and it gets better, and gets better. And there's nothing on earth like that can do that. Nothing on earth does do that. In fact, we get tired of just about everything here on the earth. I don't care how good it was. 
Uh, people strive for riches. They attain those riches, and they're not satisfied. They didn't do what they thought it was going to do. Uh, people try to, to have fun. Nothing wrong with having fun. But you know as well as I do that fun doesn't last forever. And some of the things that you used to think were really fun, even if they weren't sinful, they were really fun. It's what you really like to do. You don't like to do it anymore. You know? Okay, that's just it. That's just the truth. But, you know, in heaven, it gets infinitely better all the time. We're going to see this from Ezekiel 47. How can that be? Because God is infinite. That's why. An infinite God can do that and will do that for his people. Uh, you're not going to get tired of being in heaven. You're not going to be tired of the new heaven and the new earth. You're not going to be bored, so to speak. People talk that way. They say, man, you know, if heaven's going to be uh, one extremely long church service, count me out. I don't want to, you know. <laughs> you know, that's not what it is. That, that's, that's not it. But we'll be worshiping, and we'll be glorified, and we'll be astounded, and we'll, it'll infinitely be better and better and better. And that's what we'll pick up with next time that we meet. Uh, for the book of Revelation. Okay, Pastor Mike, if you'd come, and you can also lead us in prayer and lead us to the table.